0: Welcome to Clear Creek Sunday Cast. We are, as as Bella said, we're in a service called God Is, in in a time when there's so much that's uncertain in our world, Uh, politically, geopolitically, just in so many ways, things are uncertain. What can we be certain of? Well, we can be certain of the things that have been revealed about God, who He is, His character, what He does. And so, as Bella said, when you say God Is, she immediately thinks, well, God is love, and that's biblical. First John says that again and again, so that's a great place to start. A lot of people fill out that sentence by thinking about attributes of God. Well, God is faithful. God is holy. God is mighty. God is just. God is good. Attributes of his character. Some people think about the, the acts, the way God has demonstrated his power. Well, God is creator. He's sustainer. He holds all of life together. God is the judge. God is the forgiver. Some people complete that sentence by reflecting on their experiences with God, ways that he has met them. Well, God God is the comforter. He was there in my time of loss. God is the healer. I've experienced his power. God is the one who answers prayer because he heard my prayer. There are a hundred billion ways you could finish this sentence. God is what? Well, today, because we're, we're using a reading plan from the YouVersion Bible app, we're Bible.com, and the plan is simply called God Is. And so it's actually a, a six-day plan. We're turning it into a five-week plan. <clears throat> so you can go there and read. It'll give you scriptures to read every day, a devotional thought um, that you can read, or every week, a devotional thought. And this week's plan um, is that God is merciful. God is merciful. And biblical mercy, as we'll see, is defined as meeting us with unexpected kindness. He shows kindness in ways that, well, I I didn't have that coming. I didn't see that coming. Thank you, that. So rather than me trying to define mercy or explain mercy, I want to show you a picture from 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now, the the scripture will be on the screen. I also encourage you to always bring a Bible or open your app or somebody say, on your app or in your lap, however you want to do it. And we're going to use one of my favorite templates for looking at biblical stories, which is Scripture is a picture, and it's a mirror, and it's a window. And it invites you to look at increasing depth. So let's look at 2 Samuel 9 together, starting in verse 1. One day David asked, Is anyone in Saul's family still alive, anyone to whom I can show kindness For Jonathan's sake, now I'll come in and fill in some of that background. If you don't know who these people are, that's fine. We'll get there. He summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Mekir, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Makir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth re- replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth bowed respectfully. I have to say his name about eighteen times today. It's going to be a problem if I can't say it. He bowed respectfully and exclaimed, "Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me?" And then there's more detail where he calls a servant in and says, "You are in charge of his master's, or of his property. You and your servants will now serve him." And it says from that time on. Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. So scripture, first of all, is a picture. Let's take a look at this picture of mercy. And in this picture, we see a king, a crippled man, and a table. Now, a little background to the story. This was fairly early in David's reign as king of Israel. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, King Saul, the first king of Israel, and his son Jonathan, who was David's best friend, were killed in battle. In chapter 2, David was anointed king and Saul's oldest son, or oldest remaining son, were both crowned king at the same time. So we have conflict. Matter of fact, 2 Samuel 3 then begins, that was the beginning of a long war between those who were loyal to Saul and those loyal to David. That's what happens. As time passed, David became stronger and stronger, while Saul's, Saul's dynasty became weaker and weaker. So that's chapters one, two, and three of 2 Samuel. By the time we get to chapter nine, David's kingdom is now firmly established and prospering. David has conquered his enemies, secured his borders, built a palace, brought the ark back to Jerusalem, to the, as the center of worship. God has made a promise that His Descendants will reign on Israel's throne forever. So for David, life is pretty good. He's transitioned now from warrior king to ruling king. And one day, he was just reflecting on his journey. How did this humble shepherd boy become king of this nation? And he was remember, remembering, reminiscing about his dearest friend, Jonathan, son of King Saul. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, Jonathan had made a request of David. He knew that David was going to be king, not himself. So he said, David, when you become king, do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Because typically when a new king took the throne, what's the first thing he does? He eliminates all rivals to the throne. He kills any successor any relative of the previous king. I mean, that happens all through history. That's how the game of thrones is played. It's even common in biblical history. But David loved Jonathan. David owed Jonathan his life, so of course. He said, yes, Jonathan, I'll always be kind to your family. And David never forgot that promise. So now that his kingdom is at peace and he has time to focus on what kind of king he wants to be, he asks, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now that word, kindness... Is a rich Hebrew word that shows up again and again and again in the Old Testament. The the term is Chesed. It's you'll see it spelled H E S E D, but you have to say it with a good, you know, Hebrew. So let everybody say. Chesed. Now wipe off the back of the head and the person in front of you. Sorry about that. This this word is sometimes translated kindness, sometimes mercy, faithfulness, loyalty, even grace. It's like the, the you know there are 50 Eskimo words for snow. That's how this is. This word is so rich in meaning; no English word alone can capture its depth. It's often used to describe God's covenant love and His loyalty to Israel. God showed Chesed to Israel. Well, David wanted to extend the same Chesed to someone in Saul's family, keeping His covenant to Jonathan. And here's how he asked the question. He said, "Is there is there no one left in that still left in the house of Saul?" to whom I can show God's kindness. It's a picture, a picture of a king who keeps promises. But there's more to see in this picture, isn't there? Because this picture also includes another man. and Notice this detail. David asks, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? And the man named Ziba replies, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. He doesn't even call him by name. My friend Daniel Overdorf, who's going to be president at Johnson University, where I went to school, said, from the beginning, this young man is identified as a stigma, a stereotype, an embarrassment, not as a person. Well, his name is Mephibosheth, and here's the story. When he was five years old, he was five years old when his father, Jonathan, and his grandfather, King Saul, were killed in battle. And so when news reached the palace of their death, there was panic. They knew somebody was going to be coming For the throne. So a nurse scooped up this little boy and took off running, but something happened. She tripped. She forgot about that one loose step on the way down, something. She dropped him, and he was permanently disabled. His legs were so severely damaged that he would never walk again. So he was sent off to live in Lodabar, which was an overlooked outpost beyond the reaches of where anybody cared to go. And he was forgotten, he was forsaken, he was invisible. Mephibosheth was a nobody. So in this picture, we have a king and a man whose life defined him as less than, and there's a table. Now, when, when the soldier showed up at his door, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth's heart must have just dropped. Well... They found me. It was a good run. I guess this is the end. But they didn't come to kill him, they came to honor him. And notice when he was brought before the king, what David said Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth. The king knew his name. Then he said, Don't be afraid. For I will surely show you kindness. I will show you chesed for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And then he made a promise. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. Saul was king. This was a lot. And you will always eat at my table. So he made two promises. You'll have a place that's your own and a staff to work the land for you. You'll also have a place at my table. That to be invited to somebody's table was the highest honor. It signified trust, worth, security. If someone was at your table, you pledged your life to protect them. Well, that's what chesed is it's kindness beyond belief, beyond expectation. But it's too good to miss. So that. This picture tells us four times. Verse 7, David said, you will always eat at my table. Verse 10, and you will always eat at my table. Verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Verse 13, Mephibosheth always ate at the king's table. This was a big deal, an unexpected kindness. Mephibosheth wasn't treated like an enemy or a rival, but as a friend. He was no longer shamed, but honored. He was not an outcast. He was family. That's a beautiful picture, a king a broken man, and a table. And a lot of times we stop there. We look at the picture and we say, well, that's nice. So what do we do with it? We, we look. We're encouraged. We're inspired. Great. God, teach us the lessons you want us to learn from this beautiful picture. Amen. Now let's go to lunch. But don't stop there. Keep looking. Because if we look long enough, the picture becomes a mirror if we allow the Spirit to guide our thoughts and He will lead us into all truth, it becomes a mirror reflecting some of our own lives and experiences. Now hopefully you see in the kindness of King David a reflection of God's kindness to us. He doesn't have to show us mercy. He's the king. He's the lawgiver. He's the judge. It is within God's rights to strike us down in our sin and yet God is merciful. He knows our names. He shows loyalty covenant love and I hope you see the table reflected in this gathering in the church in a place where the outcasts are welcomed where you aren't defined by your dysfunction or your disability or the scars of your past you're defined by the name given you by your father you are beloved you are chosen you pursued but to fully appreciate the beauty of the king and the table You have to confront the reality that I am Mephibosheth. I'm weak, as Bella said, undeserving, unworthy, crippled by my selfishness, my anger, my pride, my greed. I think we could all echo the words of Mephibosheth. Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a a dead dog like me? Now, nobody likes to think of themselves in that way, and I hope that's not the voice you hear when you look in the mirror. But there is a spiritual reality reflected in the mirror of Scripture that we have to confront. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 2. Once you were dead, dogs, because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God, and all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Let me face it: we do have a sin nature, which is always with it, with us, and you have to confront that for the chesed of God to make sense. You have to put it in the context of our crying need for mercy. So Scripture is a mirror, but don't stop there because our message today isn't one of condemnation but of hope. So we have to keep looking. I was thinking, when you look at a picture All you can see is what the artist painted or what the photographer shot. It's what's in the frame. That's it. You might want to see what's around the corner. What is she looking at? What is he afraid of? What's going on? All you see is what's in that frame. And a lot of times our approach to Scripture is that way. Well, that's what it says. A mirror is limited to what's in front of it. Maybe you can see what's behind you when you look closely enough. But scripture also is a window. And a window invites you beyond what you can see from a distance. Look closer. Stick your head out. Climb through. Go exploring. When scripture is a window, it gives us an unlimited view of God's chesed, his loyal, merciful, covenant love. So back to Ephesians 2, this mirror that shows us, yeah, you were dead. You were disobedient. You were running with the devil. He didn't stop there. Two great words call us from the mirror to the window. But God, yeah, you were dead. You were disobedient. You were lost. You were following your own evil desires. But God is so rich in mercy. He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Unexpected kindness. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace, and there it is again, and kindness. Now this is Greek, not Hebrew, but it's the parallel to that word, said. His kindness toward us as shown in all he's done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. So who is God? God is chesed. God, God is loyal. He is overflowing with covenant love. He pours out surprising kindness. When our sins have us in the worst possible spot, vulnerable without defense, when we're on our faces expecting And probably deserving death, he calls us by name. He lifts us up. And that's a truth that is infused all throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. look, Look with me through another window into God's mercy. The book of Lamentations. Not a place you'd expect me to go. Lamentations is a brutal slog that, Israel has been destroyed the Babylonians Babylonians are taking them into captivity it's it's a horrific account of what happened there's pain confusion, grief regret so for five chapters this anonymous poet is crying out to God blaming God and I would say if you ever want to read Lamentations read it in the summertime when there's lots of daylight don't read it at this time of year because it's dark but he says things like, I'm a man who has seen affliction. I'm, I'm a man of constant sorrows. I'm besieged and surrounded with bitterness and hardship. I'm I'm again these are words from the book. I'm buried. God, you have buried me in a dark place. You've broken my teeth. You have me chewing on gravel. I've forgotten what happiness is. And he is unabashed about calling God out for it. You did this to us. You let this happen. I feel betrayed. I feel confused. I feel abandoned. I'm angry. But smack in the middle of the book, it's five chapters, and right in the middle section of chapter three, it's a a poetic structure that all points to the central truth of the book. So surrounded by gloom, despair, and agony on me on all sides, right in the middle, He says, when there's so much that I just don't get, there's one thing I know about my God. So in Lamentations 3, starting in 21, but this I call to mind. When everything else is bad, this thing I remember, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord. Guess what word that is? It never ceases. His mercies never come to an end, for they're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. What an unexpected word of hope. All of Scripture is a window inviting us to breathe in the fresh air of God's mercy, to climb through, to explore and discover and delight in His steadfast love, His unexpected kindness. God is holy and just and mighty. And far above us, yet near to us, he judges sins, he answers prayers, he rules the whole universe. He is all of that. But at his core, God is love. God is merciful. And that that reality, that certainty should change us. How? How does God's mercy change us? Well, first let me talk to church folk. Let me talk to the Jesus followers. In Romans chapter 12, Paul wrote, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, when you consider his unexpected kindness to you, in view of that, in response to that, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When we look at Scripture as a picture, it teaches us things about God, and that's good. When we look at Scripture as a mirror, it reveals things about ourselves, and that's necessary and good. But when we look through the window of Scripture to the expansive world of God's mercy... It should transfix us. It should transform us because his mercy is soul-restoring, life-giving. It releases us to live. Well, as we have received, we're free to give. As the picture becomes a mirror, becomes a window, It should bring a particular truth into focus. It should help us make sense of the world and how God intends us to live in it. So here's a truth from this story of of kindness, of mercy, as it becomes a window. And that is those who receive God's chesed should extend God's chesed. Very simple lesson. The kindness he pours out on us, he intends to channel Through us. So just like David asked, is there someone to whom I can show God's kindness? He was led to reach out to a forgotten, forsaken, invisible man. So today, as you look through this story, not just at, consider what God might be saying to you. Who might God, God, who are you leading me to? Who are you laying on my heart to serve? Who can I minister to? Who can I express kindness to? Who's hurting? Who feels powerless? Who's been pushed to the edges? Who feels unworthy? And how can I show kindness to them? How can I invite them to the table? How can we as a church be a fountain of chesed? We should be the spiritual equivalent of those warming stations they've set up around Monroe County. Come in from the cold. Find what your soul needs. Who can we love? Who needs to know God cares? Whose perception of God has been warped by a church that has rejected them, and how can we change that? How will they know God cares if they don't learn it from how we care for them? Maybe that's a lesson we as a church can learn from looking through this story. But let me also say to those of you who aren't Christ followers, who maybe know what it means to live in Debar, in exile, a long way from the king's table. Maybe you're crippled by pain, regret, fear, anger, confusion, uncertainty, just by the scars of sin. And you think, there's no place for a dead dog like me. Well, as Bella said, Jesus came for us, Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. David didn't tell Mephibosheth, tell you what, bud, you clean up, you get a job, you learn to walk, and then you can come to my table. No, he just said, come, eat. Jesus says the same, just come, Bring your pain, bring your brokenness, bring your insecurity, bring your dysfunction, bring your addiction, bring your guilt, bring your regret, bring your doubts and your questions, your complaints. Bring it all. Just come. Just as you are. Clear Creek isn't perfect. But that's good news for you if you're looking for a place. Because since we aren't perfect, we won't demand perfection of you. But here's even better news. Jesus is perfect. And in his perfection went to the cross so that that requirement is gone for us as well. We can come in all our imperfection to the arms of the Father. That's chesed. That's loyal. That's faithful. That's unexpectedly kind. So we invite you to climb through the window and discover And explore and be transformed because our God is merciful. Let's pray. Father, may the words of lamentations be ours today. This I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God, may we come to know, believe, trust, and experience your mercy. God, that you welcome us to your table. And God, as we receive, may we give that others may know your love for them. To. God, may we as a church, may we as individuals be captivated by your unexpected kindness given to us through your son. And we pray in his name.